0: I actually saw George Wallace on stage in Birmingham, Alabama with the Commodores, minus Lionel Richie, and the Commodores sang to him once, twice, three times a governor. I swear to God. Oh (laughs) my god. Top that, Nigel.
1: Hello, Cleveland! Turn your speakers up to 11 because it's time for Too Much Effing Perspective, the podcast that asks musicians and entertainers to relive their most spinal tap moments when nothing seems to go right and everything seems to get weird. I'm your host, Alan Keller, a comedy writer in LA and lead singer of the least heralded Chicago band, The Falling Us.
2: And I'm your co host, Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for The Bodines and lead singer of the least heralded Milwaukee band, the Vainglorious.
1: Our guests today are Patterson Hood and
2: Mike Cooley, the driving forces behind Athens, Georgia's drive-by truckers. We're gonna talk to these guys about the best way to deal with bands in a public restroom, which famous band Patterson's dad refers to as the chocolate vomit, and whether there's still confetti embedded in the floor from a 1999 Flaming Lips show at the legendary Forty Watt Club. So without further ado, Let's go to the t
1: m e p show.
2: It really puts perspective on things, so it doesn't even matter too it? much. There's oh, too yeah. much perspective now
1: Alex, putting a band together is hard. I've had many bands, some lasted years, and some didn't last to the first gig. in nineteen eighty five. I graduated from school, and I turned down a big job at Procter & Gamble to work at the Chicago Reader, <laughs> typing classifieds while I tried to f- figure out what to do with my life. How's that coming? Well, it depends on where, <laughs> how do you think of what we're doing right now.
2: <laughs>
1: anyway, once I opened a letter from an inmate at the Joliet State Prison requesting a subscription, guess who that inmate was? Let me think. Juliet Jake Blues? No, that's, <laughs> I have no idea. That's a good guess. Who no. was it? Serial killer John Wayne Gacy. Whoa, you're kidding. Now, when I got it, I, you know, it was like, yeah. And I dropped it on the floor. <laughs> Everybody in the <laughs> office came by to like look at it and wince. And I had to chopstick it with two pencils and throw it in the garbage. But that was just one of many. And, Occasionally I would find one from a musician looking for other musicians and I would answer them and you know try out for the band. And I found this one from this guy and that guy was Charles Manson. No, but
2: Yeah, yeah, great songwriter.
1: <laughs> great songwriter. You know, I love to w- look at Hitler's paintings while listening to Charles Manson's demo tapes. It's just kind of something I love to do. Anyway, <laughs> I don't remember this guy's name, but I remember I contacted him. We jammed at his dad's deli after hours
2: perfect for you perfect
1: for me i got a pastrami out of it and that was it <laughs> I, I didn't join the band i had nothing against the guy i i didn't talk to him again shoot forward a couple of months i get called into my boss's office and she says that this guy had called the reader and claimed that he had sent numerous other ads in looking for bandmates and that i was intercepting them and throwing them away
2: well, first of all, you're really dating yourself by talking about letters being sent into the reader and like you typing up the ads. But but aside from that, I mean, maybe John Gacy you know, told him that you did that kind of thing. That's right. That would
1: that would make a lot of sense. But <laughs> frankly, even if I wanted to, there was no way I could have done that. We had tens of thousands of classified ads each week and we had a dozen typists. So, it, But my point is, that's how most bands start. You meet some stranger on the internet or wherever, and you start playing music together before really knowing them. So it's no wonder most bands don't make it to the first gig.
2: Yeah, it is really serendipitous. And on this theme of serial killers for version 1.0 of my band, The Vainglorious, I did the same thing. I advertised in the local news weekly. I was actually looking for a female drummer. And guess who responded? A dude, right? He said, I think you're looking for a needle in a haystack, and I guess I was convinced because Sheila E. hadn't called, and so we hired this guy. (laughs) A year later, during a wardrobe change at a photo shoot, I saw him bare-chested, and he had self-tattooed the words Jeffrey Dahmer into his abdomen. (laughs) Oh, God.
1: Yeah. You know, yeah. a sidebar to that, just so you know, you know Jeffrey Dahmer's from Milwaukee. We're from Milwaukee. My sister's in laws owned Dahmer's building.
2: That's true. Wow. Yes. So Landmark.
1: I, way too many connections to serial killers for me.
2: Yeah, this is really scary.
1: Well, okay, just but but as you said, it just goes to show it's really hard to put a band together with strangers as a crapshoot. But contrast that with Spinal Tap, childhood neighbors from Squatney. Nigel Tufnell, and David St. Hubitz form a lifelong musical partnership, and the rest is history. And it
2: wasn't just the characters, right? I mean, aren't Christopher Guest and Michael McKeon old friends?
1: Yeah, they played in bands together in the 60s, I think. And of course, you know, their creative collaboration extended to comedy. In fact, their rock and roll creation, Spinal Tap, predates the movie by many years. In 1978, they filmed a pilot for a sketch comedy series called The TV Show, And with two more friends of theirs, Harry Shearer and Rob Reiner. Didn't go anywhere, but
2: there's actually a Spinal Tap video from that on YouTube. That's really something to collaborate with the same people for that long. Like our guest today, Patterson Hood, Mike Cooley. Their band, Drive-By Truckers, was actually celebrating its 25th anniversary on the day of our conversation. And they tell us they had a lot of ups and downs, but it's easier to weather those if you're
1: doing it with old friends. Well, old chum of nearly 30 years, hopefully that will be the case with this creative collaboration of ours.
2: Uh, we'll see. But in any way. That
1: didn't sound too hopeful. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Thanks a lot. In any case, as long as we keep things in f perspective, I think we have a shot. Let's get to our conversation with Drive Bike Truckers. But first, a short break. <laughs>
1: And now for our conversation with a guy who once asked the burning question, what kind of asshole would name a band drive-by truckers? That would be Patterson Hood with his bandmate, Mike Cooley.
2: We always start these interviews by asking our guests, what is their favorite scene from the movie This Is Spinal Tap and
3: why? I'm kind of fond of the one in the limo where the driver's just Yada, 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 yada. And I think the Nigel character hits the button and the little divider starts coming up and the guy's still talking. I've never had that device at my disposal, but I've done the equivalent of that. (laughs) The movie was long before uh, we knew what a chatty Uber driver was, but now everybody's been in that scene where you wish you could just mute this guy. (laughs) It's like, please, I just want to go to the hotel. Stop talking.
0: It's like the, the, the whole Spinal Tap thing, the whole humor is based on the fact that those guys were taking it really seriously and being inept. And we sort of like from day one embrace the fact that the very nature of this job is absurd. Yeah. And, and all the best parts of it come from the absurdity. I mean, our name is fucking Spinal Tap, for Christ's sake.
1: Okay, tell us about one of your band's more absurd Spinal Tap moments.
0: <laughs> I, I think of Jason Isbell trying to take a shit that night <laughs> in, in Detroit. And uh, bless his heart, I, I know he wouldn't care me telling this story because I'm pretty sure I've read him tell it before. But, but back when Jason was in our band and he was... Basically, sitting his brains out in the stall.
3: And- yeah, it, I mean, we, we've all we, we've all had to try to get through the show <laughs> with our dinner not agreeing.
0: Yeah, and so he's he's sitting there just taking a monument. And the guy somehow, I guess, had either seen him walk in or recognized his boots. God forbid, I don't know. For some reason, the guy outside the stall knew it was him and started like engaging him in conversation. And Jason's like, "I'm sorry, man. I'm I'm really just trying to take a shit," and it completely wigged him out.
1: <laughs> well, there's a fine line between shooting the shit and actually shitting. <laughs>
2: Patterson, you let me know that today is the literal 25th anniversary of Drive-By Truckers.
0: Yeah, which is almost anticlimactic because Cooley and I, we're hitting like 36 years of playing together in a couple of months. But
3: uh, I I thought we had passed 25 a couple of years ago. I I don't know.
0: yeah. Yeah, I think last year should count as like 10 years anyway, in every way.
2: Haven't you guys been in four bands together? Yeah. What were those bands called?
0: Well, the first one was Adam's House Cat, and that was the big one. We did that for six years, and that was like where we both kind of, sort of learned how to be in a band. Adam's and-
3: House Cat was way more Spinal Tap than Drive By Truckers. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. We we still thought this was something you should take somewhat seriously. Yeah. And as soon as you realize it's not, it gets a lot more fun.
0: Yeah. This is all true. Our second was just a duo. Basically, the band broke up, and we didn't get the memo, so we just kept playing together. (laughs) And we were a duo. We called it Virgil Kane. All these bands were wildly unsuccessful. Then there was a third band that we ended up (laughs) kind (laughs) of...
1: May I ask if this is Horse Pussy? (laughs) This was
0: Horse Pussy. And uh, everybody Everybody was Horse Pussy.
2: pussy. I got to ask this. Did Horse Pussy and Ass Pony ever do a double bill?
3: (laughs) No. (laughs) We didn't have a hair on our ass for not playing a show as Horse Pussy. And it was just a name that we thought was funny, and it was. Oh, and yeah. we should have just called a band that and played at least one show. I'd love to just still have a flyer in a frame.
1: So that's not a real band? That no, was, was just a real a band. Was,
3: we were a band at the time, and, and we, we called ourselves Horse Pussy for a couple of days and never actually booked a gig under that name.
0: Yep. Yeah. And, then, and then there was like a, a break during which time I – Lived at my mom's house at 29 and wanted to (laughs) jump off a bridge. Moved to Athens, Georgia, and my life kind of turned around. I started trying to put together this band that I had in my head. And and the big part of that was I wanted to play with Cooley again. And so I was basically trying to put together a band that I thought he would maybe want to play in some. And that became Drive-By Troners. And that was literally 25 years ago today. I saved up some money and I bought a day of studio time and I invited some musicians I had met in Athens, half of whom had never met Cooley before that day. And Cooley drove in from where he was living. He was living in Birmingham, I think, at the time. And we got together and we recorded five songs, two of which became a a single that was the first thing we ever put out. And now is a collector's item on eBay and
3: uh and I don't think I have one
0: <laughs> if you don't have one I'll give you
3: one Oh, cool I've got, yeah.
0: I've got three and uh you recorded five songs that day yeah five songs that day
2: yeah you got you guys like the Ramones of the south yep.
0: <laughs> and then uh, one of those songs ended up on our second album and that was sort of the magic take when I knew that we had something it's like ah oh, this is kind of cool I-, I like this this is gonna be fun you know, no one got paid. It was all like beer and pizza. And uh, at the end of the day, I was like, "Hey, everybody, like to play a show or two? I'll book a couple things." And that was it. That was how it started.
1: How do you guys relate to each other? Is your band a democracy? Is it a dictatorship? Or is it a anarcho syndicalist cult? <laughs> you know, what,
0: what is it?
3: <laughs> it depends on what needs to get done. It, it works
0: real well at this point. It, it hasn't always, but it works real well at this point. If someone has a big opinion about something, everyone's pretty much like, oh, that must be important because someone has a big opinion about that. You know, I generally try not to piss him off.
3: and uh, <laughs> I try not to get pissed off.
0: <laughs> yeah, you know, there, there's a bit of a hierarchy because he and I have been together for so long. And then Brad, our drummer, he's still relatively new at like, Twenty-two years, twenty-three years, and uh, <laughs> and I mean the really new guy in the band we're hitting a decade with. So it's been super stable for the last ten years. After years of there was like ten years of total chaos and drama and all kinds of bullshit, and then we kind of came out the other end of it. And it's been like kind of remarkably- you know like
3: Spinal Tap.
0: Yeah, it's been very fun. It's been very very fun. <laughs> I think the secret to us getting along is we just basically call each other by the most horrific names we can think of whenever we see each other. And so there's no like, there's no pin up bullshit.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Has one of you ever said about the other, we shan't work together again?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Probably. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
2: I remember last summer when you wrote that article for NPR, basically apologizing for calling yourself Drive-By Truckers. Why did you feel like you needed to do that?
0: Yeah, yeah, it's a stupid name, and it's okay. I was in a time in my life that embracing the absurdity of all of it was kind of right up my alley. It It was the 90s, and as far as the new music scene in the 90s, a lot of it was taking itself very seriously in a way that I found not particularly appealing. After Cobain died, all of a sudden it started to sound like everybody was trying to sound like Nirvana without being half as good. And they all had these like super serious sledgehammer kind of names. And so the idea of something kind of stupid was fine with me. All I was listening to at that period in my life was old timey country records and old soul records. And then I was really into hip hop. You know, the Atlanta thing was just starting up and Outkast and bands like that were just putting out their first records. And I loved all that. And so it was just kind of a play on what I was into. I was like, oh, gangster rap, which was a something it was called at that Moment in time, you know, and I was listening to old truck stop tapes of Red Sovine. It's like, oh, drive by truckers, you know, I bet we could sell out the star bar with that name. And we did. (laughs) And we did. The first, first time we ever sold out a club in our lives. It was like a tiny room, 250 probably, but we'd fit 350 in there. I'd spent a couple of years working in clubs. I sort of knew what worked. I knew what not to do as far as the stupid shit that annoys club owners and the people who were going to be paying you at the end of the night. You know, I, I'd kind of figured out that, okay, if people come to see you and they drink a bunch of beer, the club owner is going to love you whether you're good or not. And so people came to our shows and they drank a lot of beer and the club owners loved us. And in those early days, night after night, we'd get told, Man, there was only like 40 people here, but goddamn, they drank like 300 people. It was great. When can you come back? You know, and so we just kept coming back. And uh, and then the next time there would be three. Yeah, people. Was
3: per, it was performative drinking yeah, for a lot for of sure. years.
1: My band, unfortunately, was a teetotaling band, and we were sponsored by Lipton, and the club <laughs> owners didn't, didn't really appreciate it very much. <laughs> Hello, Big fat liar, here's a wolf in cheap's attire. Obviously, Spinal Tap go, went through drummers like toilet paper, right?
0: We went through bass players. It was bass players for us.
1: Well, your band is kind of like a, a revolving door of people.
0: In, in the beginning, it was. Partly because I didn't know anybody. I mean, when I started this band in Athens, I was like super low man on any totem pole of the musical hierarchy of that town. I was a sound guy at one of the smaller clubs. I'd made some friends who all played in multiple bands that were way more successful than anything I'd ever done. And so they were kind of doing me a favor. It's like, hey, I booked a day of studio time. You want to come over? I'll buy beer. And it's like, oh, yeah, sure. You know, and they'd all heard my songs by that point, because I'd probably open for all of them's various bands solo by that time. Cooley drove over and we had fun and then we just kind of kept it going.
3: Yeah, there there were six people in that original lineup. So, if there was a show, I, I didn't make all the shows. Uh was I lived 4 hours yeah. away. Every now and then it would be all six. Sometimes it would be four, sometimes yeah. it might be two.
1: Under the name Drive-by Truckers? Yeah. Like it yeah. would be and it that's really different. I've never heard of that before.
3: Yeah, well, it's yeah. it's branding, man. <laughs> you start with the brand, and then you build everything else around it.
0: As terrible as the name is, I had the name first. I mean, I actually intentionally had that name. So that all lands on my sorry ass. I'm sorry, Cooley. <laughs> I really am. <laughs> if I had any idea.
1: <laughs> Listen, it could have been worse. It could have been horse pussy.
3: <laughs> oh, no, I'd love that. Cause. I
0: mean, no, that's probably not worse. I'd, I'd take that. <laughs>
1: Patterson Hood lives in Portland, Oregon, and back in 2020, he took part in and filmed the George Floyd Black Lives Matter protests that were in the news, and that footage ended up becoming a powerful music video for the band's song, The New OK. Yeah, you
0: know, we've always had a political aspect of what we do. At the same time, I don't know if any of us ever really wanted to be like Jane Fonda, you know, it's like I, I wrote a song. I wrote what it means because it was eating at me. You know, the whole Ferguson thing, it just was happening at that time. And the Trayvon Martin decision had just come down where they weren't going to charge the guy. And it was so awful and terrible and wrong. And it was driving me crazy. And I wrote this song and I thought, ah, you know, I don't know. I don't know if the band will want to do this. I don't know. But I played it for her. And Cooley's response was basically to play me his new song, which was Raymond Casiano. And it was like, Oh, okay. I guess this is going to happen, you know? And the next thing you know, we basically were making the American band record.
2: This isn't a new thing for you guys. though. obviously right. Southern rock opera. when did you record that 2000? Yeah. Something like that. I mean, yeah. you were making social and political commentary in that sure. album. I, I even asked you some things about that Patterson. I remember we, it was some things I learned about George Wallace that I heard in the songs and, uh, the admiration between Ronnie Van Zant and Neil Young, I think I said to you, are you making that stuff up, or is that actually factual? So I think you've made a commitment to that for decades. Yeah, I,
0: I was really scared making that record of saying something that I couldn't back up, particularly in relation to the Wallace stuff. You know, I was like reading books and taking notes, and I wanted to make sure the thing I said about. Wallace winning in 82 with over 90% of the black vote, I wanted to make sure that was true because that's a big thing to say. You know, it's like, what? Because it, it sounds so absurd unless you know Alabama history, <laughs> you know? And then all of a sudden kind of makes sense because the guy running against him was so fucking terrible that the average black voter knew, at least they knew what they were getting with George Wallace. He had already kind of denounced his old ways and he was courting the black vote by nineteen eighty two. You couldn't win without it by that time. And so you know we wrote a song about him going to hell. And that was the reasoning why he was in hell is because he was that guy, because he was willing to sell out in order to win. And so I want to make sure that I wasn't full of shit on something like the 90% thing or whatever. If someone called us on it, then our whole record it didn't work.
1: Well, you know, first of all, I'll tell you something. In 1988, my band, Women's Liberace, talk about a s- stupid band name. Um, <laughs> That's awesome. I love
0: it. We put a- <laughs> Damn, Cooley. Why did you think of that?
1: <laughs> we were on a Rolling Stone list for the best new band name. Not best new band, but best new band name. I told you. <laughs> but anyway, Women's Liberace was a Milwaukee band, and we have a connection to George Wallace in that his assassin, Arthur Bremmer, was a hometown boy. Right. So. When Wallace, I guess, retired from public life in about 1989 or 90, I wrote a little kiss-off song to him called Good Riddance that was on Women's Liberace's eight-song tape, Adam and Naive.
2: Huh.
0: One final Wallace thing. Speaking of Spinal Tap, this is better than anything in Spinal Tap. I actually saw George Wallace on stage in Birmingham, Alabama with the Commodores Minus Lionel Richie because he had already left the band, and the Commodores sang to him once, twice, three times. A Governor, I swear to God.
2: Oh my God! Wow!
0: So. Top that, wow. Nigel. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Bringing it up to COVID times, can you tell us about the first gig of your most recent tour, Indianapolis, Indiana, the Vogue Theater?
0: Oh, oh yeah. We were two songs into soundcheck and our tour manager basically told us that we were going home.
3: Yeah, that that day and the couple of days after were like- Terrible, yeah. Really strange, you know, looking back on it now, because we were- kidding ourselves a little bit. We were in denial about how what this was actually gonna be. We may
0: have to cancel two months of our tour. A few yeah, weeks. It could be two months, dude. It could be it could actually be two months. Right. What are we gonna do?
3: <laughs> it could be yeah. all summer. And and you know, honestly we, when I left the house I wasn't feeling good about finishing no. the tour. And by the time we got to Indianapolis, the rest of that tour was canceled and they were dropping like flies.
1: Everyone was on a different page too, right? Mm. I'm a writer and I was at a WeWork space and I was the first person to say, hey guys, you know, you can't have mugs and utensils just lying around. There's this virus out. Yeah. And I said, guys, you're going to infect everybody. And everyone was on such a different page. I mean, that's kind it of like,
0: part of the problem. You know, there's people, they won't, they won't get a fucking shot.
3: And that, that's not any one group either. Yeah. It's not even owned by any one ideology.
0: No. We can't even just make fun of the Trumpers on that.
3: No, not completely. I saw this
1: woman on the news. Actually, she was a doctor. I have no idea what kind of doctor, but she said that the vaccine had magnetized her and that forks stuck to her face.
3: I know one way a fork will stick
1: to you. I I thought if she's a doctor, I called her Doctor Keforkian.
3: Yeah,
2: which
0: could be a name for a band. The (laughs) Keforkians.
1: Athens, Georgia is probably the original indie music scene, right? From It's one of them. I mean,
0: it's a good one.
1: Athens is late 70s with B-52s, and then there's probably Minneapolis.
0: Sure, that's a good one. And
1: then Seattle and Chicago. Yeah. Right?
0: Chapel Hill was like always on the verge of blowing up, but it never quite did, even though there was a killer bands out of there. Yeah. But Athens had more bands per capita in the 1990s than any place on earth. You know, Athens is only like 120,000 people, tops, and uh, some really great ones. And it was a diverse scene. So I mean, there was like all kinds of stuff from Elephant Six to hippie bands to-
1: Of Montreal, one of my favorite bands.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So it was crazy.
1: What do you attribute it to? The water, the air, the- f-
0: R.E.M. Okay. Domino effect from R.E.M. Because they created this idea that, hey- you can actually do this. This is a cool place. And it was a cool town. I mean, I live in Portland, and people all the time are like, did you have culture shock when you moved from Athens, Georgia to Portland, Oregon? It's like, no, I had culture shock when I moved from Muscle Shoals, Alabama to Athens, Georgia. That was culture shock. I mean, Athens and Portland yeah,
3: that's a much bigger are step.
0: way more alike than you would think. They're both super hip, liberal Artsy towns and uh, Athens actually has the more liberal local government. One of our city commissioners in Athens took her oath of office on the autobiography of Malcolm X. You know, she's a hip hop performer and she's amazing. Uh, Mariah Parker. It's Athens is cool. Was it camaraderie between the bands? Was it competition? What was the vibe? It was mostly camaraderie, it was very little bullshit. There's always going to be a little snobbery about genres or subgenres or whatever, you know. But I mean, at any given time, the drummer in one band's probably the drummer in other bands. You know, the drummer in the Drive By Truckers in the beginning, he was in several bands, including a band with his brothers. And we started using Brad whenever Matt couldn't play a show. We'd use Brad, and then after a point, it got to where we were using Brad more than Matt. He's been our drummer ever since it was a fun scene and it still is i'll be in town and i'll go out one night and just stumble in and see some band in front of 20 people and then think god it's a cool band you know it's like ah, it still happens were you
1: influenced by any of the 80s southern rock bands like i was a very big jason the scorchers
0: fan
3: oh we loved them oh yeah i love jason and the scorchers yeah
0: i know we loved we loved the georgia satellites too i mean they were an 80s band they were cool, you know? Yeah, they were great. They were way better than that one song that they're famous for. I mean, it's like there are other stuff. Keep your hands to yourself, you Yeah, know? right, 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 I mean, right. It was, a, it was a great single, but it was a lesser <laughs> song. Battleship Chains, man, that's that's some great rock.
3: Yeah, they and they, they were a great live yeah. band. What about John Hyatt? Love John Hyatt. Yeah, I love John Hyatt.
0: He has a brand new record with uh, Jerry Douglas. They have a new record together, yeah. and, uh, you know, his daughter Lily is Incredible. Right. Toured with her. She she's badass.
1: One of my greatest concerts I ever saw was 1981 or two. John Hyatt opened for Graham Parker.
0: Oh fuck. Oh, that'd yeah. Be great. And that's when yeah. John
1: Hyatt was more of a pop guy, right?
0: Yeah. I love those records.
1: Yeah. Would, like kiss the girls and make them cry, you yep. know, and "Slugline."
0: Yeah, he was great. I mean that Bring the Family album is one of my favorite records. And Slow Turning too are two of the best records yeah. I love slow turning. of all time.
3: Yeah, that b- both of those together are fantastic. Yeah.
2: Patterson, you did sound for a while. You were on the at least on the sound team, right? At the legendary 40 watt. And I was with several bands that went through there. Radiohead played there. Bodine's played there. And um, I know for a while, Barry Buck, Peter's ex-wife, owned the place. I don't know if she's still She does. still owns oh, it. Oh, does yeah, it? Yeah.
0: yeah. She's a close friend. Uh, one of my favorite people. And Valina, who works with her, she's been booking it since before I moved there. It's like 92 or something. Wow. There's still people who worked there when I worked there.
2: And- Any crazy stories from the 40-watt? <laughs> i
0: mean
3: yeah you know yeah i mean uh w- once upon a time <laughs> the end yeah. Yeah. Uh, every waking moment qualifies as a crazy for story, for
0: sure one of the managers there he would hire me to make extra money cleaning up after shows just you know mopping the floor and shit uh and he his name was craig he ended up coming to work for us he worked on the road with us as our merch guy for seven years and unfortunately is has passed away uh, he and i had to mop the floor and clean up after a flaming lip show on the soft bulletin <laughs> tour and uh i mean hundreds of pounds of confetti mixed with all the spilt beer on the floor and you come in the next day and it had become like <laughs> cement and so we were <laughs> literally like scraping <laughs> the dried confetti and dried beer off of the concrete floor oh. for like eight hours oh my a God. day
3: it, 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 i want to say we played a show there like Maybe a few weeks after that, there was still still confetti confetti
0: on that floor. (laughs) I'll guarantee you, there is still confetti on that floor from that show.
1: Well, coincidentally, my bandmate that I've been together with for over 40 years, and he played bass on Soft Bulletin on the song Superman.
0: That's my favorite Flaming Lips song. Uh, It's one of my favorite songs in the world. So, oh, is that crazy? You know,
1: tell me if this ever happened to you. So. He and I were once at a bar, and we are talking to this guy, and he, we told him we were musicians, and he goes, oh, you're a bassist? To my friend, he goes, I'll tell you my favorite bass. It's Superman on Soft Bulletin. It's a goes, great part.
0: And he goes, that's me. Oh, well, I'm Facebook friends with this guy here in, in, in Portland. He's a studio owner and session player from years and years back. And his name's John Neff, which is the same name as a former pedal steel player in the Drive-By Truckers, incidentally. And so we become like Facebook friends. And I just found out the other day, he's the guitar player on Me and Mrs. Jones. By
1: no Billy way. Paul, which
0: is like, I mean, that's wow. one of my favorite songs
1: ever. Uh, me too. Me too. Well, so I was i was at a preschool and I there was a dad there and he was a guitarist. And we were talking about guitar. I go, you know, my favorite guitar album of the last... 10 years is the first Frank Black in the Catholics album. It's a great record. And he goes, that's me. And he goes, it was Lyle Workman. I oh, go, I uh, honestly did not set you up for that. I had no idea.
0: <laughs> My dad played bass on a Frank Black record. Which one? <laughs> uh, what's the name of it? He actually played on two of them. Teenager
1: of the Year. and
0: It's like several after that. Like 2003, 2002. I don't know. Sometime like that. <laughs>
1: But your dad isn't just any dad. He played on a ton of soul records.
0: Yeah. My dad's David Hood from the Muscle Shoals Sound Rhythm Section. And yeah, he's played on a ton of stuff.
1: Wilson Pickett? Pickett
0: and Aretha and Bobby Womack. Some of my favorite stuff. And Willie Nelson, he played on Phases and Stages. And Bob Seger and Paul Simon and Rod Stewart. Boss Skaggs' Loan Me a Dime with Dwayne Allman. That's my dad on bass on that. Amazing. But uh When we were starting out, Dad would make fun of the music I listened to at that time, including the Pixies, and he would refer to them as the Chocolate Vomits. That was like (laughs) his... Catch all name for something I liked that he thought was out of tune. And he would always make fun of the chocolate vomits. And years later, (laughs) he ended up playing with Frank Black. And he and Charles hit it off like gangbusters. And he told him the story about that. It's like, ah, you know, when my son used to play me the Pixies, yeah, you know, I thought it was the chocolate vomits, you know, and Charles thought that was hilarious. And they became buds. So, you know, it all goes full circle.
1: My dad actually was Al Jarro's electrician. So he, you know, he didn't, he didn't plan his album, but he wired his house.
2: <laughs> Cooley, you said that Drive-By Truckers have some gigs booked for later this year. Yeah. What's that look like?
3: Yeah. I, I, I will leave in uh, five weeks and four days. That's how it feels. <laughs> <laughs> to be precise. Yeah. I haven't counted down anything like that since I got my driver's license. <laughs> uh, yeah, me too. I, I'm almost afraid to believe it. You know, I'm still in that state where is it real? You know, is, is it really going to happen? It's, it's
1: <laughs> I had a question, you know, like the movie The Hurt Locker. Yeah, Remember he comes back from Iraq, and he just can't adjust. And I know a lot of musicians like that. They live for the road and they don't know how real life is, right? How did you guys feel about being laid up for that long? It sucked. Was it hard?
3: Yeah, absolutely. It took a toll on our mental health, no doubt about it. Absolutely. Um, I think here in this part of the country where nobody gives a shit, (laughs) that was another thing that was so hard was because People who do what we do were pretty much the only ones that were still sidelined for the last 10 months. Almost everybody else was back at work under some form or another, you know, little inconvenience here or there. But touring performers were the ones that were going to be down for the count for the duration.
2: Yeah. Well, let me ask you this, Cooley, because you mentioned the mental health impacts. You know, those have been profound. Has there been any kind of support in an organized way? Have Has the Grammy Association or ASCAP or BMI or any kind of groups that work with musicians all the time come forward with anything?
3: Sure. I, I haven't sought it out. But yeah, there were a number of groups that were trying to help everybody weather it financially because people who do crew work had no income. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. They work by the tour. I'm sure there were uh, some folks out there within the industry helping hook people up with what they needed if they needed it. Luckily I was able to talk myself down <laughs> over and over and over and over and over. Gave yourself yeah. talk therapy. Yeah.
0: And our big nonprofit that we've had the most involvement with for 21 years now is called Nucci Space and it's a uh, in Athens a Musician's Resource Center f- with their emphasis on suicide prevention. Mm. We do a fundraiser every year when we go back and play three nights at the 40 Watt in Athens. Next year, it's going to be four nights, actually. And uh, we raise money for them. Amazing. And then our fans have kind of taken it on as something like the diehards that come to Homecoming every year. Because when we play Homecoming in Athens, the majority of the tickets are people flying in from all over the world, literally, to come do this thing. And they've taken upon themselves to make us look bad on our fundraising efforts for NUCI space and in a beautiful way. So they raise way more money than we do now every year. I think they raised like almost $50,000 this year. and We didn't even have a homecoming, but they knew that NUCI's you needed to have that check and so they raised yeah, money.
3: And there, there's the fact that the, this fan base enjoys hanging out with each other as much as any other aspect. I'm not really sure we even need to be there. <laughs> no, <as
0: well>. no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we can do it as a Zoom call, but we won't.
3: Would they even notice if we didn't show up? <laughs> this is
0: all true. This is completely true.
1: By the way, they've been holding these without you for a long time during the whole club. They just didn't tell you. You weren't invited. <laughs> In our careers, we end up opening for people that we really admire. Who are the people that you got to meet that were particularly meaningful to you?
3: Booker. Yeah, Booker.
0: Booker T. Jones is just the one. That was definitely like one of the highlights of my life, was making a record with him and then touring with him. Touring with him was even better than making the record because we made the record. We'd never met him. Oh, wow. We literally met him on the first day of recording and... We only had four days to record together. And so there was a certain amount of shit and bricks because we got to get this done really quick with this person we've never even met before that we look up to like on the highest degree. And over the course of those four days, we became, I think, a, a different and better band. It was one of the most amazing experiences of my life. He taught us more about ourselves and and about our band, I think. You know, it's like amazing.
2: And Patterson, you told me that Mike Mills has been a good friend and supporter.
0: Oh yeah, wonderful, wonderful. All the R.E.M. guys have been, you know, lovely to us. I'm friends with Peter Buck too, who is my neighbor. So yeah.
2: This has been great fun. Where can people get the latest on your music, your tour dates, all that sort of
3: stuff?
0: There's a trucker dot com.
3: That'll take you to most anything.
0: Yeah, and and I'm sure probably a thousand different Facebook places too. And uh, he and I have a duo we call the Dimmer Twins, and we're actually <laughs> doing some.
3: We're doing. That's a good name. That's one of our better ones. <laughs> That's the good one. Yeah,
0: I like that one.
3: The what Dimmer is it
2: again? The Dimmer Twins, not to be confused with the Glimmer Twins, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. Oh, the Dimmer Twins. Yeah, we're the, the Dimmer Twins. And-
0: I mean, right now we're booked through June of next year, including Europe. We're coming out here, the West Coast in February. And so, yeah, come look for us. We'll we'll have a ball.
2: Well, that sounds great. Thank you, Cooley. Yeah, sure. Thank you, Patterson. Good luck with the year ahead. And Patterson, I'll see you in the backyard. (laughs) Good meeting you guys.
0: Thanks a lot. All right. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye.
1: You know, an artist's relationship with the audience can be very fragile. Most err on the side of caution, making anodyne comments like, hello, Cleveland.
2: We know it works.
1: Well, well, it does, unless you're in, you know, Omaha. But, you know, <laughs> once, I, once I had to sing at a Jeff Buckley memorial, mm. and I love Buckley, and this was soon after he tragically died. The concert was at a coffee shop in Chicago where he was very popular and played many times. And as I stood at the mic waiting for the band to kick in on Lilac Wine, I felt like I needed to release the tension because this was a celebration of his music, not a funeral. So I said, you know, Jeff's not performing tonight because they looked like they were expecting him to show up. Needless to say, it was not something I should have said. And worse, his mom was in the audience, which I found out later. I found out later that I didn't know.
2: Another in your streak of self-sabotage (laughs) moment. I mean, what were you thinking? probably that I can't wait for the shrooms to kick in. Mm. But on a
1: serious note, I think about how hard it must be to be a politically progressive Southern artist today, like drive-by truckers, and sing a political song to a crowd in, say, Alabama. You're in the middle of this nation's divide, and if you care more about your career than your integrity, it's easier to avoid provoking your audience. But Patterson and Cooley don't care. They'll play a song in Birmingham and sing the words, it's summer in Portland and everything's fine, Black Lives Matter holding the line, We've got mommies and vets taking fire from the cops on the beat and the occupiers.
2: Wow. That's really something. I mean, taking the truth where it's not welcome is courageous and admirable. And I think the longevity we mentioned at the start of the episode really comes into play here. It sure helps when partners have each other's backs, like Patterson and Cooley have for over a quarter century. And like I've got
1: yours, old chum, even though we're on Zoom. <laughs>
2: We wanna thank Patterson Hood and Mike Cooley, the Dimmer Twins, for joining us and sharing their stories. And gratitude to the artists, Harry Shearer, Christopher Guest, Michael McKeon, and Rob Reiner for their creation, Spinal Tap, and all the joy and laughter it has provided to two generations of music fans. And the cautionary tales it's given to musicians everywhere. Find the film, this is Spinal Tap on iTunes, Amazon Prime, and listen to the music on your favorite streaming service. This week, we're recommending the Spinal Tap hit tonight. I'm going to rock you tonight. This episode is edited by Gretchen Kilby. Music by J.K. Harrison. Please follow Too Much Effing Perspective on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, Castbox, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the series and us, your deeply unqualified hosts, visit our website tmepshow.com.
1: Although it would be as great as having armadillos in our trousers, this podcast is not affiliated with This Is Spinal Tap, and no person or entity connected with the film has sponsored or endorsed its content. This podcast is not affiliated, sponsored, or licensed by Authorized Spinal Tap LLC or Century of Progress Productions. On behalf of my co-host Alex Hoffman and myself, thanks for listening. We're going to leave you with a song I wrote with my friend Mike Benign and our band List. H-A-P-P-I-L-E-S-S called Hopscotch Town. Available on iTunes and Spotify. So until next time, see ya on two Much Effing Perspective. In Hopscotch Town, cameras and sound are all around. They blend into the landscape. Smile, you are on tape. In hopscotch town, the lights are down. Rounds, the sound